Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi now, this is Dave Junkin, radio DJ and host of the longest running radio show with the smallest audience. That's my wife. You're listening to The Hilo, a weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast hosted by journalists Dolly Anderton and Pandora Sykes. I'm going to be hosting a one-hour special on BBC Three Counties Radio over the festive period. You can listen in on New Year's Eve at 6 p.m. I'll see you soon, and in the meantime and in between time, keep smiling. Welcome to episode 79 of The Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And thank you very much to Deke Duncan, who introduced us today. Some of you may remember this is Dolly's favourite story of the year. We Dolly Anderton's favourite story. <laughs> Dolly Anderton made Dolly love him even more, but <laughs> he got her um, surname wrong. Dolly's favourite story of the year, the radio show in the UK, hosted by the septuagenarian Deke Duncan to his wife Pam and only Pam and when he's not available he gets someone to cover his shift so that Pam is never without her radio show anyway the story got picked up it went huge last week to the extent that when Dolly got in touch with BBC Home Counties (laughs) BBC Three Counties the press officer immediately when I said hello I'm Dolly Alderton I'm a journalist she said hello are you calling about Deke Duncan because she'd been so overwhelmed with calls from journalists so anyway it was our dream come true to have Deke kick off this episode so thank you very much DJ Deke we are thrilled Dolly, how was Manchester? You had an epic weekend to end the Everything I Know About Love live tour. God, that's a tongue twister. I know. It was good. It was Chester Friday night. Lovely. Chester's a very, very pretty place. Saturday was a bit of a shit show. There was a strike. So we're going from Chester to Salford on the Saturday. There was a train strike when we got to the train station. So there were no direct trains to Manchester. So we had to do this like quite convoluted long journey, which means we'd miss our sound check. We'd be half an hour late for the sound check. We're like, it's fine. They weren't, they weren't mind that they cushion so much time anyway. Mm-hmm. We then get there. There is some sort of football match on um, and gridlock traffic for an hour. Show's meant to start at two, five to two. We're still three miles away from the venue and this was a sold out show so it was like hundreds of people people tweeting being like got my Prosecco just waiting for at Dolly Alderton and I'm just literally sitting in a group and Dolly Alderton's three miles away with her legs triple crossed because she yeah. needs a wee and then I couldn't get hold of the venue No, and we tried to get hold of the venue we went through a box office and they didn't understand I didn't want to book tickets to the show that I, was, I am the show I was the show oh my um, god Joel can we just we've got we've got a guest <laughs> producer today the uh, lovely Joel Hello, Joel, Joel can you just take that line out so you have Dolly going I didn't just want to go to the show I am the show <laughs> I think I, I may, hear her saying I it. I may even have said that. I hear her saying it all the time about the high low, and I have to go, well, technically, Dolly, you're only half of the show. Anyway, I carry am on. the show. So how late were you? So then it got so bad. Have people deleted you from the internet for this lateness? Oh, it got so bad that I had to go onto my Twitter, DM, borrow a, a, bicycle. DM a girl. No, we literally had to get out at the roadside and walk for the last mile and a half, just pounding the streets with these huge overnight bags. And uh, I had to DM a girl, being like, hello, who's like just waiting in the auditorium for Dolly Alderton. And I t- messaged her and I was like, uh, hello, I'm speaking at the event today. Is there any way that you could give my number to a member of staff? <laughs> get them to call me. It was so stressful. There was literally a moment where it was like two o'clock and Laura and I were like, this is when they're, they're ready to play the walk-on music. They have no idea where I am. I was like, this is literally my worst nightmare come true and there's nothing we can do. What time did you get on stage then? Half two. You kept the people waiting. Can you imagine if it oh, was actually it was so revealed stressful. that you just had an oily bath that had run over? <laughs> and I mean timing, not that you'd like flooded the bathroom. An oily bath. 
but it ended up being a very lovely show but it was you know those nightmares where you have where you're you turn up to you know you do it's a the school, dog ate my homework yeah show. you do a school play and you look down and you realise you're naked and everyone's laughing at you it was like that a bit well on a good note Christmas is almost coming my Christmas tree arrives today <gasps> is that a patch.com tree it's a patch tree I've got mine coming on Saturday I'm very excited I think I'm at I was about to say, actually, I think I'm at the age where I can now buy sort of quite chic Christmas decorations. I was thinking that this year. But then I remembered I have a baby who will smash them all. So reverse, negate, we'll buy you some nice... But then when does that period end? Probably not Uh, About 10 years? Yeah, 15, I'd say, actually. Oh, we can't wait that long. Oh, I know what I'm going to do for you. I'll do what I do for my tree where I've made like little pop culture icons and put them onto cardboard and hung them up by string. Yes, I want that, please. Yeah, so I'll make you a few of those and then Zadie can just stick those in her mouth and no harm done. She can suck on Zayn Malik's head. <laughs> oh, God, that... Moving on. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> a heavenly Christmas ad is doing the rounds. It cost £50 to make in 2014. And it's been resurrected this year via the art of social media. I think because none of the other Christmas ads have really resonated with people, have they? Mm. There haven't been any real tearjerkers. And God this is a tearjerker made even Ollie cries by far the best Christmas ad I've seen this year and it's not even a Christmas ad yeah and it's actually beautifully shocked as well you would never know that it was done on such a small budget I, when you said to me just get Pandora emailed it to me and she said get ready to cry and I thought no I'm resisting it I'm doing that thing I always do where I refuse to be moved by everything but the great unwashed is moved by instead you're moved by a wind sock <laughs> And actually, I got... I completely fell apart. Completely fell apart. It's so moving. Although I must say, I think I might be the only person on Earth who really likes the Elton John one. The only thing about the Elton John one, though, is it's not Elton John Day, it's Christmas Day. So I don't really want a Christmas advert with someone famous in it. I think maybe it is Elton John Day. I don't know. He's very camp. He's quite Christmassy. No, it's... I think it's more the Elton John story, what that represents. It's a sort of Benjamin Button tale. What that... Re- <laughs> I love that. What that represents for the Christian celebration of Christmas. You know, I think it's about your childhood dreams and some old toot that you don't need to buy. <laughs> I don't know. We'll link to the advert that we loved in the show notes so all of you can enjoy it. I'm not going to link to the John Lewis advert. You can go and find it yourself or turn on the telly. <laughs> in other news, have you heard the Baby Shark song? No, oh I haven't God. heard the Baby Shark You're song. You're going to be... You're all over it. it this week. I know. I know, suddenly so zygosty. Yes, teaching me acronyms I didn't know. Do you know what, though? I think I'm actually very behind the times because I found out about the Baby Shark song through Michael Ball's Radio 2 show. So I think probably it means I'm the last person on Earth to know about it. I don't know what the Baby Shark song is. You're going to be obsessed with it, Joel. I think we're going to have to insert a clip here. It's um, this earwormy song that children are obsessed with. And Michael Ball was saying he thinks it's going to be a Christmas number one. And once you hear it, you will never be able to get it out of your head. And I don't know why. I really like it. I can't stop singing it. And it's about baby sharks. It's about a baby shark and a, a family of sharks, basically. It's about a minute and a half. Perfect for a little boogie. banger and I cannot believe you don't know about it this is normally the kind of thing that you're way ahead of the curve on we should try it out on Zadie and see how she reacts I love it now you've just played it and Dolly and Joel just did the uh, dance for me as well <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm instantly into it it's true yeah it, it's very much your vibe I thought yeah love it love it definitely into the um, baby shark if any of you have been dancing to baby shark do send videos of you doing so to the high show at gmail.com where I can't promise we will watch them <laughs> Last week, the Old Vic Theatre released a short campaign video called More Lose. Dolly, have you seen this? No. This is quite, I think, quite up your strasser. There are only 10 ladies lose in the Old Vic. That's true. At the interval of any production at the Old Vic, you've got to queue for a long time. time queuing for the loo. Well, people are fed up, Dolly. They're fed up. The theatre is trying to raise funds for a refurbishment that will allow them to create more 
Palais du Piss. Uh, uh, <laughs> actors including Bertie Carville, Glenda Jackson, and Rupert Everett read out disgruntled tweets from theatre goers. But the best is Joanna Lumley, who brings real reverence to what is essentially quite a vulgar line. And um, I'm just going to play it for you now. The ladies are about to storm the men's loose. They can't manage to have a drink and a waz at half time. And a was at half time. Oh, there's nothing better than a really genteel voice saying like really ungenteel Her things. dulcet tones could make anything sound so classy. And of course it was Black Friday and Cyber Monday a few days ago. It makes me feel pretty uncomfortable, this concept. I can't lie. It's that kind of flagrant consumerism that we inherited from America, but I can't pretend I didn't accidentally benefit when I rung to join my local sports centre I got one membership half price thanks to a Black Friday deal which was a substantial saving did you enjoy Black Friday Dolly? no comment (laughs) some people however didn't shop Black Friday quite so smartly I've got something I just want to read you out from the week drinking and online shopping it's often said don't go together and an unnamed Chinese man has revealed that he woke up with a hangover after the annual Singles Day shopping frenzy, China's answer to Black Friday, to find that he'd bought a Thai mini pig, a peacock, (laughs) and a giant salamander. This is the best bit. All along, I thought I'd only bought two sets of clothes, he said. (laughs) Wait, so he was drunk when when he was shopping? Yeah, and he bought a Thai mini pig. I want a Thai mini pig. A peacock and a giant salamander, which is a type of reptile. Yeah. Yeah. Love his vibe. So there you go. I wonder what the returns policy is. (laughs) On a salamander. (laughs) Speaking of animals, we heard from our beloved dairy farmers, a couple in New Zealand who have accepted our proposed posts as the Hido's official agricultural correspondents. They also included a photo of them holding their two beautiful children in front in front of their cattle with big smiles on their faces and I must say an incredible rosy glow in their cheeks <laughs> and I had a little bit of lifestyle envy. What else is in the old mailbag this week Dolly? This was from Maria. I feel like there are a couple of really important viewpoints that were missed during this discussion. Firstly Mrs Hinch often posts messages from her followers who struggle with mental health issues particularly depression and anxiety i myself unfortunately suffer from severe anxiety and find mrs hinch to be really motivating on a low day her demeanor is friendly and familiar and has a smack of get up and go that makes you feel like it's okay not to get everything done today just try cleaning your sink secondly instagram has become an app that is saturated with influencers working with brands that are unaffordable and entirely out of reach for the average household mrs hinch offers an alternative a lifestyle that can be easily bought into i cannot afford to buy the new sofa i've been lusting after from made.com but i can afford a bottle of lenore to freshen the sofa i already have really good points Mm. interesting thank you so much for that and this from cassie As an avid fan, I feel that you skipped over what Mrs. Hinch's Instagram account fundamentally does, provide really good cleaning tips. I now have the best smelling bins in Brixton. She encourages men and women, young and old, to blitz their houses in half an hour, which is good for the soul and gets you moving. In a time where everyone is stressed and busy, it can really help to unwind by scrubbing a table or relaxing on a newly plumped sofa, especially while listening to French chill. Ah, well, you've got me with the French chill. I think think those are really fair comments. Yeah. And I don't think any of either of us thought that Mrs. Hinch was a bad phenomenon. We were riveted by it because we're not perhaps her um, natural audience. Mm. But everything you've said has made made me realise that actually it's a pretty good thing yeah. to have in this in this world of ours. Yeah, we are so excited um, to see some of you at our live podcast at Google's Curiosity Rooms on Friday. Um, so we're gearing up for a live episode there Dolly will be applying deodorant especially for the occasion (laughs) what have you been reading enjoying and listening to this week Dolly I've been reading the big Lena Dunham profile I'm halfway through on your recommendation yeah which is it's uh, about a 20 minute undertaking but so so worth it it's written by Alison P Davis for the cut and it's titled yeah I'm not for everyone which is a quote from Lena Dunham and a kind of epiphany that she seems to have at this moment of life Um, and that's sort of the crux of the profile it's examining why Lena Dunham is such a divisive figure and how much accountability she's willing to take for that 
it's a very 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 uncomfortable read but it's also beautifully written incredibly fair sharp without ever being judgmental and it again as the as the title states it has divided the internet it was actually trending as a twitter moment today and when i was looking through at people's responses um again it's 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 really really divided people a lot of people think that she it, it's in a in a attempt for her to defend herself and and clarify her good intentions and explain the difficulties that she's come up against in recent years and why that may have had a negative impact on the things she said or her behavior it, it feels actually what she's done is is come across even less self-aware than she ever 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 has i must say and i'm saying that as an enormous lena dunham fan i think it's an absolute distillation this profile of of what trouble she's in actually i think there were two things i thought just from what i'd read so far that mm. i found really interesting as one is i think it's really symptomatic of our oversharing culture mm. i find i don't want to kind of like give away any spoilers but i found the kind of things that she was sharing with the woman writing this profile absolutely extraordinary mm. i think it was meant to convey some sort of candid transparency but to me it suggested a, a total psychological lack of barriers i also found it really interesting because one of the things that lena dunham said that i have found most interesting that i used in a long form piece of writing I've just done on authenticity is she said that she really railed against this idea that to be authentic you have to be messy mm. so that you have to show kind of the unraveled bits of your life mm. and this profile is a total smorgasbord a banquet of mm. all her unraveled bits for us to consume and part and given that she said that part of me wonders if is she just being a hypocrite which is normal human you know i wouldn't judge her for being a hypocrite we all say stuff and then do another or the slightly more worrying thing is is she now trying to co-opt some of that messiness to oh, yeah. kind of buy back some kind of favor in the public eye and that yeah. makes me sad because that makes me question her motivation that's that's what alison the writer slightly hints towards that she feels that the extraordinary level of candor is a tool is she well she she says she notes she she reports a lot of the texts that Lena Dunham sends her throughout their time together, and she doesn't say it's manipulation, but she says she knows full well that this is all pieces of evidence that I'm going to use to piece together a portrait. She's, of Lena her. Dunham's a writer, of course she knows she's going to do that. Yeah, I think, but I'm, I I don't want to sound. Um, despairing or judgmental about her i just think the best thing that she could do she goes through a catalogue of horrific things that have happened to her she's she talks about her breakup with jack antonoff she addresses for the first time the fact that her friend the musician lord um it was reported that they'd had an affair and the fact that she and lord haven't spoken since um she talks about her hysterectomy and the and the fact that she didn't even have time to get her eggs frozen and the enormous longing that she still feels around women with babies and around kind of pregnancy. Uh, there's actually a very funny throwaway line where she says she's suffering from PTSD at the moment as well, from sexual abuse and from health issues. And she said to Jemima Kirk, who's going to want to date me? I have PTSD and no uterus. And Jemima Kirk says, um, a soldier who doesn't like to wear condoms. <laughs> So she's, you know, she's still very funny and very, very clever, but she's also, she's, there is a lack of self-awareness. And do you know what else there is? There's a lack, there's an arrested development. And you see it in the way that she behaves around people, particularly there's a few scenes with her mother and you see how babied she is and how infantilized a lot of her behavior is. And I think it's because that, you know, that phenomenon that we know so well, she was catapulted into the public eye age 24 and i think she's have hasn't really had a chance to grow up and develop as a woman really probably controversial suggestion here do you think she and and her mother have been quite open about how their family is a very artistic household and also a household that deeply believes in therapy mm. they've all collectively singularly been in therapy mm. for extended periods mm. of time it's something they all believe in as a family do you think that and i think that the kind of modern trend for more people to visit therapists is a great yeah. idea by the way i think yeah. everyone even the least troubled of us mm. should Would they benefit, so wish to yeah. could benefit from a um kind of non-partisan 
party yes. discussing their issues. But I wonder if kind of that oversharing culture is now bolstered bolstered by the fact that so many people are going to therapists are kind of shedding their their deepest mm. you know inhibitions or whatever and that it's that kind of lack of barriers I mentioned earlier that now she doesn't really know how to because I think she's been in therapy since a very young age yeah, Lena Dunham so yeah. she's very kind of au fait with talking about the darkest parts of herself I just wonder if that has contributed to this I think that's complete lack of barrier and I whether think, we're going to see more of that in I future. think that's an interesting point and I think actually what I've noticed throughout all of her work which I again must disclaim I have loved I really, she's been a really really important influence on my life as has her work what I've noticed throughout all her work even you know in, in Tiny Furniture in her memoir is that she's from this very unique context familial context of artists and performance artists a conclusion that Alison Davies draws is that it's almost as if it's almost as if she has the the boundaries between what's real and what isn't and art and reality and fantasy and fiction and the truth and and the life we live and the life that we retell had those boundaries have become so blurred for her it's almost as if she she repeatedly makes herself a spectacle or a whipping boy in the public eye or says extraordinary things that she knows is going to provoke an upset because she herself thinks she is a piece of performance art and actually the thing that i found saddest in the interview, which they don't touch on until the end, is that her and Jenny Connor have split. Have fallen out? Have acrimoniously split? They, that's well. That's what it seems so. Well, it, it did. They, it. They're dissolving the Lenny Letter. They're dissolving their production company. And the journalist says that when she speaks to mutual friends of theirs, they've had a big fallout. And I thought that was really quite upsetting because I just think the thing is with Lena Dunham that most people can say is that the chatter around her the stuff that she says the branding that she gives of herself the politics all that stuff is often awful uncomfortable tone deaf terrible 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 the art is always great in my opinion and I think most people think that the work is fucking phenomenal and I think that once the work goes with her the Lenny letter was hugely popular. Mm. Mm. How interesting. Anyway, have a read of the rest of it because I would love to hear the rest of your thoughts. Mm. I definitely, definitely will. Super interesting. What else have you been enjoying this week? I've been enjoying Amy Schumer on The Armchair Expert. With You're Dash enjoying Shepherd. The Armchair Expert, are really you? good. Yeah, this is a particularly interesting one because, again, this is a, this is a woman in the public eye who, you know, was... Toast of the town, is that a phrase? Toast of the town, talk of the town, toast of the month, flavour of the month. It's talk of the town and toast. I don't know where toast came from, Dolly, but I do like toast, actually. What's your favourite thing to put on No, we're not doing that. Stay on topic. So, she was... The Bovril. (laughs) Bovril is such a you topping. Um, She was obviously enormously, enormously successful. Everyone loved her. Spread, not a topping. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, she's courted controversy recently. As but you're more going. recently, it feels like, as as we always do with women, people have slightly turned on her, and she's become more of a divisive character. And it seems to me, again, like Lena Dunham, that she has had to really sort of retreat and change things in her life. And she sounds kind of exhausted by a lot of things in the interview. She talks about. I Feel Pretty and its controversies in great detail, and I haven't heard her do that yet in a in a kind of spoken interview confront all of them like did she confront your issues with it she did she still there's one thing she's still not getting did she say i know that dolly anderton had a few issues (laughs) (laughs) dolly anderton's just gonna keep running and running isn't it Um, vermont anderton (laughs) um she's there's one thing she's still not getting and it's i'm finding it i want to shake her every time that i what she's still not getting she's still not getting she addresses the criticisms that it's not that radical to examine a story like I Feel Pretty through the lens of a woman who fine maybe is 10 pounds 20 pounds bigger than the average Hollywood actress but it's still a thin passing blonde white woman Uh, and she does so with kind of intelligence and self-awareness and a degree of not remorse but um, 
Just acknowledgement. Acknowledgement. But what she still isn't getting, which is the issue for me with that film, is she still keeps saying, the whole thing is, it doesn't matter how thin you are, just be confident and you can have anything you want. And that's problematic for me because it's it's shames women into thinking that if you buy into this patriarchal culture, which constantly makes you feel inadequate, then you're fucking failing again. And you can't ignore the fact that I would love to say, oh, it doesn't matter what size you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. Just be confident and you can have everything you want. But in they're life. inherently connected. That's, that's not true. And it doesn't mean that I don't want that to be true. I'm desperate for that to be true. But I think lying about it and therefore making women feel bad if they do engage with that sort of, not engage, if they do acknowledge or feel that sort of shame that is thrown at us at all times, then they failed on that level as well. So I think it's more, and reviews have said that about I feel pretty that even though its intentions are so wonderful and so optimistic and brilliant it's not truthful about the world we live in so I think that's the issue that I still have when she's talking about it great for you that you've got to a point where you can you your know, confidence your is separate confident, from your body image yeah that's wonderful that's not the truth for a lot of people so I don't know how helpful that is so yeah that's interesting and another really interesting thing about that interview Dax Shepard who's the interviewer and an actor talks to her about um, Me Too and they're talking about the kind of fear daily fear that a lot of women live through she you know she talks about that whole thing of walking home from the subway and having the keys wedged in between your fingers and how men will never really understand what that kind of constant fear is and Dax Shepard who had mentioned earlier in the episode has been sexually assaulted chipped in with something I think it was slightly thoughtless the way he chipped in saying oh well men have that too and Amy Schumer really snaps back at him and says it's nowhere near as worse it is nowhere near as worse and it's like quite an uncomfortable moment and then at the end of the episode, Dax Shepard talks about that moment and says that he realises that he was kind of minimising what she was saying and he regrets the way that he chipped in. And then he says that Amy Schumer texted her because she'd been feeling bad. And she I said... I love that he kept all this in. I know. He could totally have edited that out. I know. And she said... And he, she gave him permission to read the text aloud and she said to him... I've been feeling really bad because I feel like I didn't give you your space to tell your story and I'm finding it difficult at the moment to be able to acknowledge the the kind of oppression and pain that men are going through as well as feeling like I have the space to share the oppression that women go through and I just thought it was such a good interaction yeah and you know it's only in those uncomfortable conversations and in that space where like thought and change because she's right culturally it's not as bad it's not a um psychosis in this Mm. in the same way that it is for women but that doesn't mean that he shouldn't have been allowed to tell Mm. his story so I Mm. think that that sounds like a really constructive yeah it was that's what it conversation that they had and I think yeah I think it's great that that was kept in yeah it's really really interesting that's quite recent as well that was um an episode from October which we'll link in the show notes as always Brian May the guitarist from Queen uh, and Badger Lover was on Fresh Air. That must have been a slightly different experience <laughs> to your previous two recommendations from the week. <laughs> uh, and it's an archive interview with Terry Gross from 2010, but that they are, but they run it um, in conjunction with the release of yes. Bohemian Rhapsody, which I cannot wait yeah, to I see. Yeah, I thought you'd be excited about that. And it's a great interview for music nerds because he talks about... Um, claps and the stomps of we will rock you and how they decided to to use that as the kind of percussion uh, audience percussion in that song he talks about um the guitar solo in bohemian rhapsody and whether a song kind of belongs to a singer or a guitarist terry gross asks him what did freddie mercury mean when he wrote the lyrics scaramouche scaramouche can you do the fandango um and there's a kind of interesting chat where Brian May says that there was a kind of unspoken rule in Queen that when someone wrote a song, no matter how abstract the lyrics are, there was sort of this unspoken mutual respect that they would never ever ask each other what the lyrics meant. They just trusted each other that they, you know, carried meaning and mm-hmm. importance, uh, which I loved hearing about. And they, he also talked about why Queen never made it as big as they should have done in America and it was all because of the I Want to Break Free video 
which is a kind of very famous music video where the band are doing a pastiche on Coronation Street and they're all dressed up as women, which apparently was Brian May's idea. And because America was so homophobic at the mm. time, the minute that they saw this video, it meant that Queen could never, he claims Queen never had the kind of big, big success that they had everywhere else in the world. Because I'm sure of that that's a video. factor because America's so conservative mm. and that would have alerted the yeah. fear mongers. And finally, I would like to recommend, I think my favorite find on Twitter, of all time that is a satirical account called bougie london literary woman and i am obsessed with her quite a few people think it's you <laughs> well do you know what's funny so the whole thing of bougie london literary woman is she's a girl in her 20s i think she probably works in publishing and like any good satire it's like really specific details it's such a good satire that it's if so you good. aren't almost kind of immersed in that world or riveted by that world you might not get that it's a it's a satire yeah because it is as you say it's a woman i think it's a woman in her 30s oh it's with, 20 something in the bio well then it's a woman in her 20s <laughs> um with literary aspirations and yeah. as i think you tweeted quite a fey poetic outlook yeah on the world but also this also trying to be quite like earthy and down to earth and kind of a woman of the people and she's like into wild swimming and I have to say I found it so funny and I was reading all the tweets aloud to my what's friend. your favourite read some of your favourites I was reading them aloud and Lauren just said <clears throat> mm, there are shades of you in her <laughs> my favourites are I was reading some last night penning an ode to Marcel my Le Creuset Madeleine tray <laughs> there was wasn't there um her favourite ever dish that was quite a good one <laughs> madly besotted with my silver-backed hairbrush and I spend the dying hours of each day watching the clock till I contend to my mane with a hundred strokes before bed I suspect I shall be unable to resist doing so by candlelight <laughs> I think there's one about her favourite meal being in Marseille in 2015 and it was a delicious boulebaise that she will never again taste but that she will you know dream of in her happier hours <laughs> This is my I think that's the one that made me think this has got to be Dolly. <laughs> A boulebaise in Marseille. This is my favourite of all of them. This winsome moon, what that I could throw open my shutters, pluck it from the heavens and pop it in my mouth like a grape. Anyway. So other times there's there's stories of her being swathed in vintage satin and combing through the flea markets. She drops her sort of beloved 19th pendant. century pendant in the Hampstead Ladies <laughs> And she said she's looking for a for a lady's maid stout enough of heart and strong enough of body to restrain her in the next toast sale. Yes, I love the toast. So good. It's so toast good. is quite and earthy. also the letter writing bit. She loves sending letters. I mean, it, it, I am a little bit. You love. I am a little letters. bit bougie. So Vice interviewed her. It's a very funny interview that we'll link to in the show notes. And I think everyone just wants. BLLW to reveal herself now. Yeah, who do you think it is? I have I have an idea of actually I have a several ideas of who it could be. But I don't think it probably is any of them. We'll discuss it afterwards. <laughs> Pandora, what have you been enjoying this week? There have been quite a few pieces written about Little Mix's decision to pose naked to promote their latest single strip including the regular Piers Morgan This Isn't Feminism rally cry. Gabby Hinsliff wrote a well-balanced article for The Observer which acknowledged what so many people seem to miss. So this is... So this is it. They've covered themselves in thick black marker pen in the many insults thrown at them as young women in the public eye. Slutty, ugly, stretch marks, can't sing, stupid, fat, talentless, tart. I thought it was a pretty powerful visual, actually. What do you think looking at it? I think it's a little bit cliched. Interesting. So I think, to me, they were naked to show that when you throw these slurs at women, or as they were then teenagers growing mm. up in the public eye, those insults layer themselves upon you and they began to yeah. view themselves through that prism they cannot brush them off those those words stick but of course they have been conflated with the nudie taking kim kardashian just by dint of taking their clobber off when really the two aren't related hinsliff was pretty balanced in her piece about finding that middle ground between conservative body shamers and millennial 
exhibitionists stripping to your pants whilst everyone else is covered tends not to be a power move she writes noting that boy bands generally keep their trousers on but little mix's picture wasn't about titillation it was about shame and ways of overcoming it is this she says a political gesture that could be made equally powerful equally powerfully from inside a cardigan i, I mean, don't that, think that so. does still look like an fhm shoot i have to say i'm not i'm not being judgmental about it at all but it, it i don't know how progressive it is well, she does say that with their fans so young, the hashtag strip with Little Mix is a bit problematic. Mm. But if it's about accepting your body with all of its flaws, I think it's quite a good reinterpretation of girl power as championed by the last leading girl, pan, girl band of the day. Ariana Grande, who they've toured with, tweeted Piers Morgan saying, I look forward to the day you realise there are other ways to go about making yourself relevant than to criticise young, beautiful, successful women. I saw that everything tweet and they I do. loved her for tweeting that. Yeah, I think quite a few people have, but obviously she's very high profile. I must say, just as a caveat, so I'm worried I sound a bit judgmental. I'm not saying, oh, this is unfeminist or, or damning it as, as an anti- No, you're just saying you don't say it as a particularly effective... No, exactly. Whereas I... Exactly. Whereas I do. I think for me, there was something very arresting about seeing these, you know, these young, beautiful female forms, but covered in these really brutal words and also such like um, kind of dramatic and also irrelevant, like fat stretch marks. Mm. I mean, so much of that must have come from the stuff they've read on the Daily Mail. Mm. <laughs> Those constant kind of pictures of like pop star out shopping shows stretch marks mm. or flaunts celebrates her stretch marks celebrates her stretch marks um, but I'd love to know what you dear listeners think do you think like Dolly that you've seen it before you don't find it terribly powerful or do you like Pandora think that it um, exorcises shame quite effectively that sounds like you're doing one of those loose women view- I'm doing a poll Dolly view a poll. let me do a poll <laughs> I also read this week a really troubling article about how GHB has become the latest party drug in The Guardian. Did you know that? No. So Alexandra Jones looks into how the date rape drug became a club drug, interviewing lots of women in their early 20s who drop G. They carry it around in a small plastic bottle, like the one that you decant your toiletries in when you go on holiday to get it through security. And they spray it onto their tongue at very kind of rigorously timed spaced apart periods. One of the girls even keeps a timer on her phone because if you take it too quickly, you nod off. Ditto drinking, which is why it's a date rape drug dropped into people's drinks, knocking mm. them out blotto when, when coupled with alcohol. One of the girls, Lauren, says that everyone overdoses on GHB at some point and you essentially fall into a very deep sleep aka a coma and she says when that happens someone just rolls you on your side and lets you sleep it off i think this sounds utterly terrifying because of the ease in which you can fall into a coma which of course always carries the risk of some people not waking up Mm. it was a really interesting world piece really well researched tons of living breathing trend enacting case studies and also uh, you know tragic examples of when people had died from taking it and I had genuinely no idea that G was the new MDMA and what I what really worries me that it and and makes me think that it could become bigger is the fact that you don't drink on it because we are as we've talked recently seeing a real decline in people drinking and I hope that that doesn't that that doesn't then lead to a sort of Segue into mm. people thinking that this drug is a kind of viable mm. party alternative. Mm. Anyway, very very scary stuff. Very interesting report, and I will link that in the show notes, which people are still tweeting us about. <laughs> I'm also thinking about a completely baffling story in the Sunday Times about a 28 year old young man called Lucky Roy Singh, a gay Sikh man who was forced by his boyfriend's family to dress up as a woman in order to marry his gay boyfriend bizarrely it worked lucky didn't say a single word during his wedding day and he assumed that after they'd done this kind of quite performative wedding to please you know more conservative members of the Sikh community that him and his husband would be able to lead a you know fairly normal life however he was 
forced to remain in this role and he was not allowed to continue living as a gay man but was made to play the subservient role of the woman in the kitchen cleaning and cooking. I must be the only Asian man in the world to know exactly how wives are treated in such families he says and his book Take a Walk in My Big Indian Heels came out last year. I'm quite gutted it hasn't come out now because I'd have loved to have got yeah. him on the high low to do and author special. This piece also tells the stories of other gay men in the Asian community. It's a really interesting piece about forced marriage, homophobia and religion. Again, I'll link that in the show notes. Lastly, in the show notes, do 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 In the show notes, do 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 Lastly, I have been enjoying Roxanne Gay's Aiti short stories, which were officially published in the US in 2011, but have only been um, officially published in the UK now to, in 2018. They are very short stories, often only a couple of paragraphs, so kind of bite-sized stories about Haiti and the Haitian diaspora. I love bite-sized short stories, I've decided. They're so satisfying, especially when you don't have much time to read. And they are, especially in Roxane Gay's capable hands, inherently more lyrical and poetic and almost start to read as like modern fables or... Vignettes. Yeah, and definitely not fairy tales, but kind of cautionary tales or sort of little political... Yeah, vignettes, as you say. Mm. Highly enjoyable. I've just handed Dolly her copy and I look forward to trading notes. Also I know it's a bit distasteful to say this but what a lovely cover. That's not distasteful. Covers are very important. You remember that. Yeah no that is really important. I do just think... Meg Wallitzer always says the importance of a cover. Does she? Yeah. Yeah I just think that's a very very beautiful cover. She said which I thought was really interesting. Actually I um, will send it to you. She did an interview in The Observer this Sunday and she said that in her experience books by female authors always tend to have what she calls girl in a field of wheat so like a sort of 19th century <laughs> sketch she said even Eleanor Ferranti's books mm. have got a girl in a field with wheat mm. and she says men's books I'm thinking of Jonathan Franzen when she says this always have like very bold yeah. type across it but yeah. her books do as well they sort of conflate both they've got like quite jolly multicoloured stripes but then very bold text, like mm. the female persuasion, like the interest, yeah. interesting. She does have good co- covers. Yeah, mm. and I think she said, whilst she doesn't design the covers, her publishers know how mm. she wants to market her books. And as we all know, it doesn't really matter all the old guff that's on the pages, as long as it looks nice on your shelf. <laughs> the Hilo comes from the new online lifestyle brand Truly. Truly creates living, fashion, beauty and baby collections with high quality products at affordable prices. From cleverly designed weekend bags to a leather tassel that doubles as a phone charger, all of the products have been created to make the everyday easier. This week we love the His and Hers Nibs bag. It's the ultimate travel companion. I think a decent overnight bag is truly... A grown-up essential. It's true. You have to come of a certain age to be allowed a chic overnight bag, like this Nibs one. I love the minimal branding and the simple black as well. I'm not one for a jazzy overnighter. Agreed. Me neither. Also, rather natty the way it turns into a suit carrier. Which I will use for my own tailored blazers. Not the suit of any damn man! Exactly. It's also great for being on the go with a protective laptop panel and a wireless phone charger pocket, which is always useful because I always need to charge my phone. The medium size bag is £125 and available now. Browse the full collection at truly.co.uk. Thank you very much to Truly. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's always something to get your knickers in a twist about. 
And this week it's the M&S Sexist Undies Row. Their must-have fancy little knickers, quote-unquote, advert, featuring a model in red underwear next to a male model in a suit with the tagline, must-have outfits to impress, incensed a Nottingham shopper called Fran Bailey who tweeted in a tweet now gone viral, am I alone in finding this, their major window display, completely vomit-inducing? I first sent this story to Dolly with the title, Is This Over Woke? To which she said, no, it's gross. And I'm still unsure where I stand on it. M&S have responded that the campaign has plenty of must-haves in it. Elsewhere in the campaign, there is a woman fully clothed and in turn, David Gandhi in his underwear. In fact, David Gandhi tweeted, if any men want any must-have knickers, they know where to come, under a picture of him in boxes. I think it was the thoughtless juxtaposition then that has caused a bit of eye-rolling. I'm never going to object personally to David Gandhi in a state of undress no matter what the message is. Um, Are you a bit of a, 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 a Gandhi gal? A gander? Yeah, don't you remember? We, we I think back in the Pandoli days, did a list of all the things that make a basic bitch, and one of them is fancying David Gandhi. <laughs> there was a David Gandhi cutout as well in the uh, Sunday like Times office. Gandhi? Yeah, it didn't do it for me. He's a bit Ken Dolly. He's, I can see he's very attractive. I just love a bicep. Sue me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't like it about myself, but I do. Absolutely weak need for a bicep. Just one. Just I love one's fine. Just one's floating enough. down the street, just a bicep. <laughs> um, in terms of the fancy little knickers, um, <laughs> bring it back to the topic. I think it's a number of things that people have objected to. I just think it's the most horrid way of describing a women's underwear. Horrid way. In a sales context, I don't know what they were thinking, fancy little knickers. And I know it's a retailer's job to make us think we need to buy everything, but it does feel a stretch to call fancy little knickers a must-have. It's quite Hugh Grant, isn't it, fancy little knickers? Oh, it's very Hugh Grant. And the main issue is, as ever, that women's bodies and women's sexuality and appealing to a sense of inadequacy around those commodities to an anxious consumer are the things used to sell products next to a man who is fully clothed. Some reminders to give this context. M&S is driven by its underwear sales, the majority of which, in fact, the majority of all their shopping. I once read that John Lewis do 90% of their business during the festive period, which really illuminates this. So the majority of which are done at Christmas. Marks and Spencers is also an ailing retailer on a loss for many seasons now, and it recently announced plans to shut 100 of its stores by 2022. So in short, female underwear is their biggest product category. It's Christmas and their business is slightly going down the shitter. Playing devil's avocado here, do you really expect them not to flog that horse to death? They'd be mad not to. I don't think it is about the underwear, fancy or little or otherwise. As someone who regularly spunks a stupid amount of money (laughs) on lingerie, I don't think it's unfeminist to enjoy buying and wearing fancy little knickers. I think it's next to what they are selling a man, which is something serious and something crucially is a must-have apparently that leaves him fully clothed which to be fair as you mentioned i think might have just been a bad choice with window dressing i think it was given that male underwear and women's clothing exist in the category mm. elsewhere it was a daft move on mns's part and i'm not surprised it got flagged it's i mean it's problematic or it, worth probing further that underwear is the biggest selling category in women's wear and the biggest selling category in men's wear are suits in M&S yeah in M&S but I also think that comes down to the fact that a lot of men like branded underwear for Mm. example the wildly successful and relatively affordable Calvin Klein pants whereas a lot of women want comfy soft cotton affordable briefs that you know have a bit of lace on them maybe and historically we haven't been able to get those elsewhere gap for example very nice for basic knickers but no multi-packs ditto with suits it's quite hard to find a nice suit on the high street it's something a lot of men have to wear for work and don't have a huge amount of money to spend on it so it kind of is unsurprising when you break it down that those product categories are the biggest ones i think that's why those are doing so well and i think that's why they are kind of being hero worship side by side in the campaign Susanna Reid says something quite interesting on this she said given that we are the consumers isn't it our fault if underwear is the biggest seller for women and suits for men and I see what she means we're the ones shopping we're the ones making the best sellers the best sellers can I ski off the topical piste for one moment (laughs) where are you going onto a black run 
the worst male underwear story I've heard is my friend who went back with a guy to reveal a pair of Y fronts with a Superman logo on them. What do you make of that? I've got some stranger stories, but they're not suitable for this podcast. (laughs) Back to the fancy little knickers. I think what we've got to remember when we're discussing these stories, and perhaps when I or we are sounding a little hand-wringy about it, is that we're never talking about, you know, enormous damage that's done by one decision in advertising or window dressing or on Instagram or on a Victoria's Secret catwalk, for example. It's about an omnipresent culture that is built brick by brick, image by image, slogan by slogan, moment by moment, casting by casting, that means a woman is encouraged to only find her value in her sexuality, her physical appearance and the male gaze on it. I wondered how long you were going to go on there. (laughs) I could have run and run with that. It's cumulative, what you're saying. I could have just said that. Micro leading to the macro. No, I preferred your way. Added a bit of drama. (laughs) It's a bit of a chicken and an egg situation, isn't it? The marketing and the shopping feed into one another. Things become bestsellers in part because they are marketed and pushed the most. But I don't think I agree with Karen and Gala Smith, who said that M&S's abject sexism is the reason behind their ailing sales. I don't think the undies are a problem personally, but I do think paying female workers 12.3% less than men is. But I imagine that that is something that goes across not only the retail industry, but all industries. Yeah, and actually I was researching this morning for what the most recent national statistic is for the pay gap. And the most recent one that I could find was the Office for National Statistics in April 2017 stated that men earned 18.4% more than women. I think that's a really important context for me because I think when you view that stat in isolation, you can go all up in arms and go, well, now, you know, they really are just misogynistic and sexist. But the fact is, is they are almost 6%, well, they are 6% less than the Mm. national median. Um, And it's still not good enough, obviously, but this is also a shared national problem. Yeah, totally. not just Marks and Spencer's issue. And I'm more interested in that than dissing their underwear sitch. I buy a lot of underwear from M&S, like a lot of people I know, and I have never felt while walking around that they are gussying women up in the way that I feel a lot of major retailers do. I've always felt quite comforted by M&S's vision. I think a lot of people see... M&S is kind of like a happy place and a, yeah, and a safe yeah. place. And I think that what has happened with M&S here is that this is a classic example of retailer does one thing wrong, which is not impossible in our hypervigilant world. And suddenly every shortcoming is exposed. Mm. Ouch. Can I tell you something that they've done right recently? Oh, this is going to be something really pithy, isn't it? In the interest of fairness. They have a new sort of ultimate prawn sandwich. Oh, I am excited by that. It's really good. Is it a prawn mayonnaise? Uh, no, it's like a Mary Rose sauce. Okay, that's really sort of still mayonnaise. Isn't juicy, it just mayonnaise and ketchup? Juicy big prawns, some lovely crunchy lettuce. It, they've absolutely aced it. I can almost forgive the 12%, I have to say. <laughs> I think this type of hypervigilance is important. Only with scrutiny will we get closer to equality. But it reminds me of something Keenan Malik wrote in his column on Sunday, which has been really playing on my mind. It's not the first time I've read it or even said it here, but it's something I really believe in, which is criticism is becoming rebranded as hate. Those who criticise are not critics, they are hate mongers. And it just comes back to that polarisation that you and I often talk about, Dolly. Twitter, as usual, had a raft of opinions on this. I liked this one the most. Absolutely ridiculous. I'm sick of all this feminist stuff. I'm sure lots of women like to feel sexy in nice underwear. And I love seeing David Gandhi in his. It's so funny she should say that because the beta test name for this podcast was all this feminist stuff. (laughs) I'd like to end this segment by talking about how much I hate the word undies. I also hate the word lingerie. Which I know, you I, used I used earlier and I cringed myself out as I said it. I like ninnies. <laughs> I prefer undercrackers. Yeah, I've or, heard you say that casually before. Or pants. Because I'm a contrarian and a real wit, I like to flip the narrative and I call Ollie's pants knickers and my knickers pants. That's very pioneering, I think. 
My mum calls my dad's pants his knickers too and they've had a very successful marriage. It's a way to rebalance the sexes, I think, and definitely keep us on an even keel in our household. It actually extends further than that. Um, Some would say it's quite demoralising. I call his trousers his leggings, his boots are booties, his coat is a cardigan. Such larks. Ollie Tristan wins the award for most emasculated husband in Britain. (laughs) While we are on this subject, I would also like to highlight a ninnies slash undercracker brand (laughs) that I've fallen so in love with recently called Lonely Oh, they do the best nursing bras for anyone that's about to have or has just had a baby or who just likes being able to unclip a tit at a drop's notice. (laughs) You look like you're about to unclip your tits. No, I want to show you my... Sorry, Joel. Avert your eyes. I want to show you my lonely bra I'm wearing today. Oh! Isn't it lovely? Look at those happy jugs. I've just completely fallen in love with this brand. Not only are the bras so, so, so good and supportive and pretty. You are so prettily holstered today. Thank you, babe. Um, The branding is so modern and cool and it just makes for such beautiful imagery and the underwear as I say is absolutely gorgeous so may I point you in their direction if you're looking for a progressive pair of fancy little knickers this is not a fashion podcast but can I also mention that airy underwear is really good a-e-r-i-e huge in America and les boys les girls is a beautiful unisex underwear brand anyway we're going to absolutely get down the garden path we get into this there is a lot of really progressive underwear brands out there particularly in America and you know what I'm still going to be buying my non-fancy little knickers from M&S as well um, because it's important that we call out mistakes and hopefully they learn from them yes and on we go and throw a prawn sandwich into the trolley too oof but not in the gusset on it <laughs> oh dear oh no <laughs> Because it is the Hilo, we're moving on from fancy little knickers to the protection of indigenous tribes. A story I've been absolutely fascinated by this week is the very sad death of a man called John Allen Chow. He was a 26-year-old missionary who went to North Sentinel Island, part of the Andaman Islands, in the Bay of Bengal, inhabited by an indigenous tribe who are often referred to as the most isolated tribe in the world. Because they've lived in isolation for over 30,000 years, they cannot be exposed to outsiders who carry germs or viruses that could wipe out their entire community. Apparently, um, they are between about 50 and 400 estimated. They are also extremely cautious of outsiders for very understandable reasons, which we'll go into later, and therefore pose a danger to tourists. It is now, in fact, legal to go within three miles of the island, and I don't think you're even allowed to leave gifts for the tribespeople anymore either, which is something a lot of people, a lot of the kind of explorers have tried to do to try and communicate with them and access the island, which um, the island itself is about the size of Manhattan. John Allen Chow was there to try and convert the protected people, thought to be the last pre-Neolithic people on Earth, to Christianity. He bribed fishermen to take him to the island illegally. Seven people have now been arrested. Reportedly, he tried to enter the island a few times and had tried to leave gifts for the tribe's people, but was attacked with arrows. On his final attempt, he was killed by these arrows. His family have released a statement saying he had gone to the island of his own free will. They are pleading for they are pleading for the release of the fishermen who have been arrested by the Andaman police. And they also say that he ventured out of his own free will and his local contacts need not be persecuted for his own actions. Andaman police are now attempting to recover John Allen Chow's body, but Survival International have appealed to them to cease efforts as it comes with a great risk for both the police, the tribes people could feel forced to defend themselves, resulting in greater tragedy, and the tribes people themselves who would become immediately exposed, as you mentioned, Dolly, to all sorts of epidemics that they've never encountered encountered before. Even something like the common cold could kill them as they have absolutely no tolerance and no exposure to that. This is not the first time that Ireland has been visited by curious outsiders or intruders, whichever way that you want to read it. In the 1880s, a British naval officer entered the island and captured six inhabitants. Two of them died, who were the more elderly of the group, and the other four, who were all children, were returned to the island. 
A group of 20 anthropologists tried to befriend the tribe with no success in the 60s. The National Geographic took a documentary crew there in the 70s and uh, it ended with one of them being injured by an arrow. In the 80s, rough seas meant a ship was stranded there and the Sentinelese appeared and threatened the crew. The Indian government set up a welfare agency to protect them and did a number of expeditions to leave gifts for them and try and communicate with them, but the tribe made it very clear with arrows and menacing gestures that they wanted them to leave. In 2004, a helicopter flew over the island after the enormous tragic tsunami to see how the island and its inhabitants had been affected. And there are photos of an inhabitant shooting arrows up at the helicopter. So they've made it abundantly clear that they want absolutely no contact or invasion from the outside world. And actually of that list, that's not the full rigorous list of incidents of outsiders attempting to enter the island. That's just a truncated list of um, these kind of incidents. And they have always responded the same way. So this is not out of character to make it very clear, as you say, that they want absolutely no contact. An Indian anthropologist and the once regional head for India's Ministry of Tribal Affairs, T.N. Pandit, embarked on visits to the isolated community over a period spanning decades. The now 84-year-old says, from his experience, the group are largely peace-loving. During our interactions, they threatened us, but it never reached a point where they went on to kill or wound. Whenever they got agitated, we stepped back, he told the BBC. World Service. I imagine his success in communicating with them is what encouraged other people to think that they could have a similar mm-hmm. relationship. He's obviously the exception. Mm-hmm. I feel very sad for the death of this young man who came all the way from America, he said, but he made a mistake. He had enough chance to save himself, but he persisted and paid with his life. I found the story so interesting, but incredibly heartbreaking for a number of different reasons i think as well isn't it yeah i must say i know very little about the protection of indigenous cultures and i know it must be a very complicated and historic issue that i will now endeavor to read up on but i don't understand why we cannot just leave them alone it's really upsetting to me that this kind of colonial western curiosity is still more important than the welfare of a group of people whose existence as far as i can see has absolutely no effect or impact on ours. I think it's tragic that a young man was killed. But when I started reading about the number of attempts that have been made to invade North Sentinel, I couldn't believe how harassed this island and its people have been by the West for no other reason than this imperious right that we feel we have to know and understand absolutely every corner of the world. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I would love to know more about the last Neolithic tribe in the world. Neolithic, by the way, are the first ever incarnations of man. So they are descended directly from the first ever humans. So it would be, I imagine, genetically, biologically, culturally fascinating. Of course. But, you know, that also doesn't mean that I think we have, unfortunately, a right to do anything about that. When I was a teenager, I was absolutely obsessed with tribes. The National Geographic has captured some truly incredible photography of them over the years, although less and less in recent times, as more of these tribes become protected. Importantly, some tribes are much more private Mm. than others. As recently as last month, October 2018, um, National Geographic took some incredible pictures of the um, Awa tribe in the Amazon in Brazil. And in these pictures, they look very happy to be having their Mm. photograph taken. So it's not like it's one tribe fits all, to um, bastardise that cliche. And also, there are a number of other tribes in this this area of um, the Andaman Islands and all these various archipelagos. And from what I've read, some of the neighbouring tribes are much happier to communicate with people um, looking to kind of explore and understand these islands and tribes. And actually, two local tribesmen, not from North Sentinel, went in a boat with explorers from the past to help um, translate and understand this very specific language that the Sentinelese use. It should go without saying, but we know that every kind of tribe has its own very individual and unique way of communicating with the outside world. This is just a particular tribe that is incredibly isolated. And also made it abundantly... 
abundantly clear mm. before you know there were there was two warnings weren't there and deaths there have been previous deaths with this the National Geographic pictures for example of the um, of the Awa tribe uh, were done with safety and permission National Geographic is often one of the only outlets to be able to do so thanks to decades of carefully mm. cultivated intermediaries and relationships but we didn't used to be so protective of tribes as we are now I remember about 15 20 years ago there was a lot of tribe tourism in the 90s and the early noughties I remember reading about how you used to be able to bribe people to take a boat down the Amazon well actually arguably that still happens with with John John Allen Chow Um, and there used to be stories of them kind of giving them like chocolate bars to you know be able to take pictures and and things like that but you know there are still over 100 tribes living in total isolation in the world more than three quarters of them are on the Amazon it's the largest river in the world by depth and width and spans a huge amount of South South America's rainforest. There's a book I now actually really want called Before They Pass Away by the photographer Jimmy Nelson, which features 30 tribes on the cusp of extinction. Came out in 2015, but he began photographing the tribes in 1997. Some amazing pictures. I've been Google imaging some of them. The story has sparked fresh debate about, as Pandora mentioned, what is being called tribal tourism. And columbizing, which is a mm. phrase we hear a lot at the moment. This It draws on Christopher Columbus and the idea that he discovered somewhere that ostensibly had discovered it's itself. A, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I found the response of John Allen Chow's family quite interesting and very Christian, obviously the theme of forgiveness, and also an emphasis on the fact that he had exercised free will. He knew the risks going there. He was tenacious, ill-advisedly tenacious, but then tenacity and blind determination are part of being a missionary. It's a zeal that, you know, most of us who aren't devoutly religious can't really understand. Not all people desperate to penetrate tribes people are powered by altruism either. John Allen Chow is the exception rather than the rule. Most people would be there to exploit them to find out, for example, if their DNA or immune systems vary from ours, having lived this very primitive lifestyle in isolation. Or, or just observe them in a, in a detached... In a, in a detached and and therefore I think cruel way. Which is interesting because he he wasn't really powered by, there wasn't necessarily curiosity, it was just that religious zeal. His death is a tragedy, but it doesn't reveal the inherent brutality or violence of tribes people. They felt under threat and so they defended themselves as they have done historically. It's a very natural, primal response and in keeping with the way that they lead the rest of their lives. As I say, this is a topic I'm relatively new to and I would really, really love to learn more about it. So if you have any experience or expertise in this specific area, please do get in touch as we would love to hear your thoughts on the story and be given any kind of wider reading on the subject as well. So as always, email show at gmail.com. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to The Hilo. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show or, as Dolly already mentioned, email thehiloshow at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps boost us in the charts and other people to find us. And we very much look forward to seeing some of you on Friday at Google's Curiosity Rooms for the live podcast. Bye. Bye-bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.